1939. In the year 1939, the British government produced a motivational poster to prepare their people for World War II. At that point in 1939, there were rumors, there were talks of imminent air raids by Nazi Germany. So in an attempt to boost the morale of the British public, the government had two and a half million posters made that look something like this. Keep calm and carry on. Now, many of us know that from all the parodies, right? Keep calm and drink coffee. Keep calm and, you know, fill in the blank, whatever. Oddly enough, these original posters weren't, many of them weren't even displayed during World War II, though two and a half million of them were made. And it wasn't until the year 2000, as like 20 years ago, that there was a woman who, in the UK, she's an owner of a bookstore, and she was going through a box and stumbled across one of these original posters. And she thought, wow, that's, there's a lot of history to that. There's a lot of meaning behind that. So she hung it in her shop window. And as they say, the rest is history. So interestingly enough, though, when these posters were produced, the intention was for the British people to keep calm in the face of adversity because attacks from the enemy were inevitable. They, they could expect them. In a similar way, Jesus warns his disciples of inevitable attacks and opposition from a world that hated him. So as Christians, friends, every time we are faithful to Christ in every generation, we too will face opposition. A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. If Jesus was persecuted, and he is our teacher and our master, then do we think that we are somehow above him when it comes to suffering? If you are going to participate in the Messiah's mission, you are also going to participate in the Messiah's rejection at some point. But that said, we're not to lose heart because of this opposition. We're not to lose heart or to spin out of control or panic or fall into despair. Several times in this short passage that Ezra just read for us, Jesus says, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Which is brilliant, actually. Because he, what he does is rather than just say, don't fear, he actually says it in a way with these catchy little proverbs. He gives us four truths, four catchy little proverbs that will remind us to keep calm and carry on. You know, when you face adversity, when something, typically, you don't get a notice about it 
the night before via text or email. Usually it's pretty spontaneous, isn't it? Oh, so you're a Christian. Well, you must rah, 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 rah. It, oh, and you're sort of on the spot. Or if you're just going through a difficult season, you usually don't get an email a month before to say, in six weeks, this is what's going to happen. It usually just blindsides you often. It's interesting because when that happens, I don't know about you, but it can be difficult to find, to sort of have a clear mind. Do you know what I mean by that? Because you're sort of blindsided by it. If you can get these little proverbs, though, in your head that Jesus offers us, these four little catchy phrases sort of ricocheting around in your head, then they can just roll off your lips. Australians are notorious for that. Yeah, they get on better like a house on fire or whatever. And it's just like a house on fire, bad illustration in the last few months. I'm not going to say, but hey, just, you know, and they just, they roll off. Which bank? Commonwealth or whatever. You guys are notorious for that. In the same sort of way, these little catchy proverbs that Jesus gives can be ricocheting around in your head when adversity comes. And it's, in, it's helpful to know this. When Matthew was first penned, when this book was first written, about roughly 10% of the population knew how to read. Okay? So, and when churches gathered, they had one copy of the scriptures. So, and it was read out loud. So as they would go on through their week and trouble would arise, they could have these quick, punchy, little catchy phrases they can recall quickly to their mind. Now, as Matthew writes this, there's these interesting, here's the phrases, right? And they are punchy. Now, to us, they might sound kind of foreign, but, but listen, everything hidden will be found out, right? And every secret will be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body that cannot touch your soul. And the way and the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So what I'd like to do this morning is actually unpack those phrases. Because they're not as familiar to us. And what I hope to do is that as we unpack them, Lord willing, that like the disciples, when we receive opposition because of our allegiance to Jesus, because we're following the Lord the words of the Lord will help keep us calm and carry on. So that's where we're headed. We're going to unpack those, and I'll try to give my little, you know, uh, I don't know, rendition of that phrase, that parable, pithy saying, whatever you want to say. I may actually just kill it in the process, but so that's why I'm not stating them now, okay? I'll just let you just hang on those things, and then we'll, I'll try to give you my rendition of it. So let's pray, though. Lord, we, again, we thank you for this time to gather, and we do pray that, uh, Lord, as people, I'm sure, are tired or new seasons are coming and there's a thousand things to distract us, um, we pray now by your Spirit that we would be able to hear from you and that uh, you would continue to mold us and grow us as your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever heard the phrase, the eye of a storm, the eye of a storm. When a tropical cyclone hits, typically the center is where it's the calmest. But if 
you're in the eye of a cyclone, it might be somewhat peaceful-ish, but you know it's not over, right? There's more to come. Today's text is kind of like the eye of the storm. Last week was full on, if you were here. And, and if you read ahead, next week will be as well. This text that we're looking at this morning is surrounded on all sides by difficult commands and gloomy predictions. But meanwhile, here in the middle, we're able to catch our breath, as it were, for a second and get relief in the eye of a storm. Again, what comes after today's text is sobering and pretty unnerving. So Jesus provides these catchy slogans to set our minds at ease. Let's look at the first one in verse 26. Matthew writes, verse 20, in chapter 10, verse 26, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. In other words, the truth will out. What Jesus and the disciples were doing and teaching will be vindicated in the long run. What their opponents were doing is wrong and will be seen for how wrong it is in due time. Listen to how one commentator puts it. Jesus now backs off from the frightening scene he has just painted and directs the mind's eye toward the grand eschatological future. Big word there. In the very end, when God will judge and right everything, right all wrongs, as it were, right? So Jesus directs the mind's eye toward the grand eschatological future. He thereby puts everything in perspective and gives the true interpretation of the disciples' predicament. It is not just that time brings to all to light. Rather, on the last day, God will see to it that the truth will be victorious. The truth will out. It's interesting to me that people say this. You Christians are on the wrong side of history. Have you heard that phrase before? You Christians... You're on the wrong side of history. And by that, they mean that when Bible-believing Christians hold the line on some particular moral issue, typically dealing with sexuality, in years to come, we'll not only be embarrassed about that, but we'll be begging for forgiveness for how judgmental and bigotry we were. So you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? But, but you see, this question, or better yet, this accusation, presupposes a certain view of history, doesn't it? That particular social trends are going a certain way no matter what we do, and you don't want to be on the losing side. But if you look at history through the lens of the Bible and what Jesus is claiming here in the text, space and time are going to unravel as the Lord of history returns and brings all things to pass. 
So yeah, you bet, I want to be on the right side of history. It's going to come to a glorious end with a new heaven and a new earth. I want to be on the side, same side of history that Jesus is on. But, you know, in the meantime, when you take stances on what the Bible clearly says, you feel like you're, it feels lonely. And especially when people fling mud at you, especially when people at your workplace or your school slander you or label you as, as some kind of Bible thumper or fundamentalist or religious zealot or fill in the blank or whatever. And it sort of feels in that moment that, you know, oh shoot, maybe I am just being a bit of extremist. Maybe I am on the wrong side of history. But Jesus says that one day, all those who oppose his followers, all the ways in which they've been mistreated because of their allegiance to him will be brought to light. On the last day, God will see to it. You know, if, if you think about it, the only reason that we know Pontius Pilate is because he crucified Jesus. If he hadn't done that, well, how many other Roman procurators do you know? None. You see, in due time, it comes out. Who is in the light? Who is in the right? Who is in the wrong? Who is in darkness? So don't fear. Keep calm and carry on. The truth will out. Second, God's word will be proclaimed, and that's in verse 27. God's word will be proclaimed. So don't shrink back from declaring it. Look at verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Interesting passage, isn't it? As we keep plugging along in Matthew, when we get to chapter 13, we're going to see the disciples are taught certain things by Jesus, but they have to keep it to themselves. Or at other times in Matthew's gospel, the Lord might heal someone and their response is, wow, you must be the Messiah. What does Jesus do? Shh, don't tell anyone. You ever come across that and thought, I thought that's kind of the point, man. Why are you telling, shh, you know, what's with the hush-hush? Well, part of the reason is the events of the crucifixion and resurrection were yet to come. And so the proclamation of who Jesus is had to wait until these events occurred. Once those events occurred, on the day of Pentecost, the truth of who Jesus is must be proclaimed everywhere, openly and courageously, regardless of how unpopular it is. Preach it from the rooftops. You know, in Israel, in ancient Israel, they had flat roofs, and you could access the roof either from inside the house very easily or from outside the house. When it was very hot, you'd actually go up there. It was a cooler place to be on top of the roof at night to sleep. And... It was also a great place to make a public announcement because they didn't have social media back then, right? And 
if let's say that your son or daughter got engaged and you wanted the whole village to know about it, or let's say that you know, there was a baby that was born, well, a, a good spot to make a public announcement was right on your roof so that it could be heard by everyone in the street below. Good news isn't meant to be kept under wraps or hidden. It's meant to be shared. It's meant, in other words, to wear it on your sleeve. Speak out in the light. You know, that is one of the hallmarks of Orthodox Christianity. We don't proclaim some things while holding back others. In other words, there's not something that we try to reel you in with and then once we got you, sort of pop it out the end and say, oh, by the way, and we believe this, this, and this. What? Yeah, we do. That's what cults do. They try to reel you in and then they'll spring their dirty little secrets on you at the end or their little secret teachings. That is a deceptive and pagan way to do evangelism. Whereas true biblical Christianity tells you its view of the world up front. Evangelicals are open, honest, and unashamed about what the Bible says. They'll share it, teach it, defend it, even put it into writing and confess it corporately as a church. That's one of the distinctive marks of genuine Christianity. There are churches all over the coast. There are churches in Sydney. Sometimes people will move and they'll say, I'm heading to Sydney. Other people say, I'm heading up to Queensland. People have left this church and they'll say, I don't know if it's a good church or not. And my very first question is, well, what's its doctrinal statement? What does it confess? I could care less if they're nice people. Who cares? People in cults are nice people. A lot nicer than me, by the way. Who cares? What do they believe? What do they confess? Well, they, they don't really have one. Oh. Well, how do you know they're true? Well, they say they are. <laughs> That's nice. Well, I, I sense that they're good people. Well, that's nice. You see what I'm saying? What I tell you in the dark, speak out in the light. Our, our truth, which is God's truth, is an open truth. So, so Jesus encourages us to proclaim it. The whole counsel of God. Boldly and even in the face of opposition. That's the context. Remember we're in the eye of the storm here? So keep calm and carry on because the truth will out. God's word will be proclaimed. And three, your enemies can't ultimately harm you. Your enemies can't ultimately harm you. Look at verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Hell. For those who take risks in business or warfare, there is a common principle 
And that is this. Those are, you know, if you're in the military or if you're in business, or even if you own a business, you'll often sit down and try to calculate and try to figure out and try to discern, okay, what is the worst case scenario, right? If this thing turns pear-shaped, what is the worst case scenario? And if, and if you can work out what is the worst case scenario, if you can sort of try to plan what to do if this occurs, then you'll take the risk. Well, what's the worst case scenario that can happen to you here on this earth, even in persecution? What, someone kills your body? That can't harm your soul. Your soul lives on. And God is sovereign over all things. Look at verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. In the ancient Mediterranean world, there were small birds that you could purchase for a meal, and they were cheaper than chips. Nobody gave a second thought to these creatures. They were sold each day at the shops for a penny. But you see what Jesus is saying? If the Heavenly Father cares even for the most insignificant creatures, the little sparrow who falls from the tree does so because God has ordained it, how much more does he care and watch over his children? There is no enemy who can separate you from the Father's love or undercut you from the Father's watch care. That, no one can snatch you from his hand. There's, there's nothing that can happen to you apart also from the Father's will. Wasn't this Jesus' outlook as well? Do you think this is just my... I mean, what is Jesus? What happens when he gets arrested? He's oh, man, oh. Somebody help me. I didn't see this happening. This just totally blindsided me. Things were going so well, and now I'm getting arrested. No, what does he say in John 19? He says, you would have had no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. This is the way every one of his followers can respond to every dark providence that comes their way. This could not have happened if it had not been appointed from the Father. So don't fear. God is in control. Whatever comes to pass has been ordained by him. He is sovereign over every meticulous detail of your life. That is so encouraging. Remember I was just saying, it's important. Remember the people that leave the church and they say, oh, I'm going to go check out this church. And I say, you know, put a circle on a whiteboard and tell me in that circle what they believe, what they confess to be true about the Bible and about Jesus. Well, do you know that for years there has been Christians that have thought those same things, have got together, sat in a room and said, we should have some kind of parameters around who we are as Christians and what we believe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and we're going to call it a confession of faith, right? 
It's a really good thing. In fact, a bunch of Baptists got together because they wanted to copy a bunch of prezies, which usually happens, right? And they said, we should get together and we should have our own Baptist confession of faith. And this was written way back in 1689 called the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Listen to this when it talks about God's meticulous providence over us. It says, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least. You hear where they're getting that language, right? It's that's from this text. By his wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according unto his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable, unchanging, counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Amen. That is super rich. And if you want to check that out, you can just Google it. Put that on your fridge. That's a good way. When you get kicked in the teeth, brand that on your head. Not literally. Because guess what? When you get kicked in the teeth, and you will, in this world, your, your emotions, your, 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 by nature, we are sinners. And by our emotions, we're going to be like the fool in the shack who curses God. That's not a biblical view of the Bible. What do people do? If I'm talking about the shack, by the way, this old heretical novel, sorry, which this guy loses his child, which is a sad story. It's, it's a novel. He meets God, who's a woman, and then curses God out because of the trial that happened in his life. That's not, what, do, what do we see? What happens in the Bible when people meet God? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. You don't, you don't say, you know, I've got some choice words for you, buddy. God is holy, holy, holy. When you get kicked in the teeth and trials will come, it's helpful to have a framework of who God is. And friend, listen, as a church, to be reminding each other of these truths. I need to hear that. When I'm going through trials, I don't want to hear, oh, God is just, he wish he could help you. He really wish he could help you. If he could, he would. He can't because, you know, he doesn't get involved in, Come on. I want to hear these sort of truths coming out to saying, the sparrow falls, God has ordained it, God has ordained everything that comes to pass in your life. That God is sovereign over everything. Remind me of those things. I, I want to be bowing in worship, not in my own sinful nature, responding, oh, let me tell you, God, let me tell you who I... Come on. But I have a propensity, a proclivity, like all the rest of you, when trials do come, to shake my fist at God, to be angry, to think I'm going to have choice words with him when I get to heaven. I want to be his servant who says, woe is me on a man claims, God, you are holy, holy, holy. Amen. So, be calm.
stay calm and carry on. God is sovereign over all things. So those are the four proverbial nuggets from Jesus in which we're commanded not to fear. But did you notice he tells us who we should fear? In verse 28, we'd be remiss if we didn't catch it. Verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body. Yet we got that. But cannot kill the soul. Yep. Rather, fear. You see that? Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's interesting here that Jesus is giving his followers encouragement based upon the doctrine of hell. <laughs> like, you think that'd be like the last place you'd go, right? But he doesn't because he knows, he wants us to know the difference because knowing the difference of who to fear and who not to fear has eternal consequences. You must fear God rather than man because people may be able to kill your body, they may be able to even torture you and make your life miserable, but they don't have any power beyond this life. Only God has that power and only God can send a soul to hell. Think about it this way. I think about eternity a lot. I think about hell. I think about heaven a lot. You know Jonathan Edwards, the great scholar, there goes my mic. It's all right, I can... How's that? <laughs> I'm over it. Can I just put it in my pocket, Andrew? There we go. It's going to be, oh man. That's what I get for wearing this Britney Spears mic. I just be yelling every week. Not really. Now it's going to be dangling. So, think about this. Whatever. Souls are eternal. Right? I mean, everyone you know that has died, their soul lives on. They didn't, they didn't just disappear. Or they're not roaming the world like a ghost. Sure, they don't, you know, we don't see them here on earth anymore, walking around, sitting in their chair where they used to sit, going to their favorite cafe or restaurant or working in the garden like we used to see them. But they haven't ceased to exist. Their soul lives on. Their soul has now departed out of their body and into eternity. Yeah, I mean, you ever think about that? Because we don't see them. But their soul is still carrying on forever. So Jesus says, you, you understand the logic of what he's saying? Don't fear the people that can kill your body because that's all they can do ultimately. Fear the one who has the power to throw your soul forever into hell. What's the worst you could get this next week? The coronavirus? That would be terrible. And I pray that doesn't happen to anybody. But when your soul departs, you don't take the coronavirus with you. You understand? 
the, the most important thing and the most important person you should fear here is not your body, not this life. The scariest thing is not getting the coronavirus. The scariest thing is being a sinner falling into the hands of an angry God. That is much creepier because, like I said, many of you too, you won't be with us in 10, 15 years from now. Your soul will though. Your soul's going to continue to carry on. Are you ready to meet God? If, if you were to die this week, some of you may, I hope not, but everyone in this room is going to die. Every one of you, unavoidable. And when you stand before God, and God says to you, why should I let you into heaven? How would you answer that question? Why should I let you into heaven? See, the most, the most important f- person here to fear, as it were, deity today, is God, not man. The scariest thing in the world is not our body getting diseased or the toilet paper running out. But our soul lives on. And that's a good motivator, isn't it, when our whole world feels like it's caving in, when we're going through suffering, for, specifically for being a Christian, when we've made choices in our life that now have ripple effects relationally, financially. We've taken risks, as it were, for the sake of the gospel, and we felt like we've copped it. Be calm and carry on. The truth, friend, will out. God's word will be proclaimed. Your enemies can't ultimately do anything to you. And God, your heavenly Father, is sovereign over all things. So fear not. Hopefully that's been encouraging as we've been in the eye of this hurricane. Next week, buckle your seatbelts. Let's pray. Lord, it's easy to sit in a room where people, most people believe what we believe and we can sing songs about these truths. Um, It's entirely another thing to be put on the spot or feel just flat from circumstances in life. Would you help us, Lord, to remember these truths? I pray that these truths about who you are, who we are, and our need for you would just ricochet in our minds this week and that we would live differently because of it. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is a